Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is a podcast that explores the history, culture, archaeology, and geography of the Bible. And in this episode, we're starting off a mini-series. Uh, in, we're going to have uh, Chris and Mary are going to be talking about special texts from the ancient Near East, or STANE, S-T-A-N-E, if you would like an acronym for what they're doing. And uh, this is going to be a multi-part series uh, coming up periodically just to help orient you and introduce you to some of the major texts from the ancient world. And I, I, I'm looking forward to it. I've got a lot to learn, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm here with Chris McKinney, the famed scholar of Gesher Media, and myself, Mary Buck. We are co-hosts of this podcast. We're really excited today to talk to you about the texts of the ancient ancient world. We get a lot of questions about, hey, how do we know this text or that text? Where did it come from? What was the language? How do we use it to think about the history of the, of the Hebrew Bible? And so we thought we would do a series on that, just on the texts of the, the ancient world and how they inform the Hebrew Bible. Um, today, we thought we'd do a, kind of an introduction to that, give you a sense of some of the most important texts, some of the mo- most important languages you should be aware of that kind of thing. Um, and that'll really set us up for a series. Um, Chris, you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm excited also to start this uh, new series that is a bit indefinite at this point. Uh, we've settled on 20 texts that have some relationship to the Hebrew Bible uh, and how they influence um, how we understand the, the Hebrew Bible, but we may expand that. Um, and I'm excited to be uh, with Mary, who is an expert in, uh, in writing and Ugar and a bunch of other languages, uh, which I um, is not my exact forte. I'm more of a, of a dirt guy uh, when it comes to archaeology and geography. But I love, uh, of course, all this literature. And I'm so glad that we're able to do um, this, this, this series, because one thing I found that the, the, the disciplines associated with biblical studies and particularly ancient or Eastern backgrounds, is so big, and it can become so um, niched into these different subgroups that it's often very difficult to penetrate and understand what they're actually talking about, um, even in terms of the big picture of a, a, a given topic. And so you, maybe you've gone to an academic conference before, and you walk into a room, and you have a critical discussion going on about a particular text, and you may not even know the culture or language or civilization or anything about what they're talking about. So the purpose of this uh, series is, uh, is related to trying to uh, make those things more clear, uh, to talk about the significance of writing um, in, in terms of the biblical story, in terms of the, the background of the Bible, uh, and, and really fitting in with this larger idea of the biblical world, or even biblical worlds that influenced the, uh, the peoples of the Bible. And so I, I'm really excited about this, and I'm uh, anxious to see where we go with these next texts uh, for, for future episodes. Um, and I, 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 just if I could add to that, the reason why Chris and I are doing this together is because um, texts sit at the kind of intersection of archaeology or dirt, as Chris said, and then writing. And so you actually need an archaeologist on the ground to be like, how did we find this? Where was it found? Right? What does it tell us about? What's the medium on which it was written, etc.? Right? How was it written? What did they use it for? That kind of thing. And then you also need someone who can actually read it in the original and be able to really dive into the grammar. And there's lots of detail there. And so together, we're hoping to kind of paint a picture of these texts and then also say, hey, here's what we can learn about those texts about the Hebrew Bible. So I'm really excited to, to tag team on this one. Uh, cool. Me too. <laughs> Good. You had to say that. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, cool. So I think what we decided was we'll kind of start a little bit with 
origins, some background, languages. What are we talking about here when we say the ancient Near East? Um, we, we're going to throw out terms and, hey, what are we talking about? Uh, so we'll start there. And then I think we'll get into a little bit more, uh, maybe a case study towards the end as we think about how do we think about the history of the Hebrew Bible as related to these texts that we find. So cool. So if I can start, and then Chris would love if you could just kind of jump in as we go. I thought we'd start with the origin of writing, um, just where it all started. And of course, history typically doesn't go back before writing. History is everything post when writing was introduced. Um, so starting all the way back in 3200 BCE, uh, we have the origins of the earliest writing. And before that, we don't have anything. We have archaeology, which is very important, Chris, but we don't have any writing. So we don't know anything about, you know, about kind of their history or things like that. So, um, so beginning in 3200, we have writing beginning in two places and there's a bit of a debate about where it starts, Sumer or Egypt, but most people kind of agree that it started in Sumer. Um, and what we have there is something super cool. They're, they're, um, sort of like envelopes. So if I were going to ship to Chris 10, sheep, I would, I would create little <laughs> tokens and, but no, sheep are really important in the ancient world. That's where we're talking about sure. sheep, right? So I'm sending you 10 sheep. I prefer cows. And no, that's not same, not same. No. Um, so I don't, anyway. Um, so I would send him 10 sheep and I would create little tokens almost like, you know, um, uh, I don't know how to give it like quarters, right? And on those made out of clay, and I would draw the sign for a sheep, which happens to be a circle with an X in the middle. And so I would create 10 of those tokens and I would ship, the, I would send them to Chris saying, I'm sending you 10 sheep. Problem is they'd get lost. So they would actually put them inside of an envelope of clay, just like sending a letter, right? And, um, what And then in, when they got to Chris, Chris would break open the envelope and he would see the 10 tokens. But what they realized was, hey, we don't really need to put them in the envelope. We could just stamp on the outside of the envelope, 10 sheep. Um, and so pretty soon it was sending envelopes with the 10 sheep stamp. And then they sort of said, oh, why is it in a like why in an envelope anymore? Let's just flatten it out and make a tablet. And then it, the earliest writing we have is from Sumer in uh, Sumerian um, with kind of the 10 sheep stamp, those kind of things, right? Which are more numbers. It's more, you know, handing off trade, things like that. And that's really the origin of tablets. And for the, the first, you know, period, long period of time, tablets or clay tablets that have been flattened with things drawn on them, where really that's, that was the most important style of writing. So that's kind of the origin. And I think you, you know, Chris would love to get a sense on the archeology span from Sumer at this time. Yeah, I, I would say just a couple of things. Um, for one, I think you brought up a really important point just in terms of classification, that when we talk about history, we often might think of anything that's ever happened in world history. Uh, and of course, that can go a bunch of different directions in, in terms of when you want to talk about science and things like that, which we don't want to talk about here. But uh, just a basic division is prehistory and history. And, and I think Mary drew a, a very important point. When we're talking about prehistory, uh, we're talking about thir before 3200 BC. Um, and then after 3200 BC, we're talking about history. And so that means is that we only have some 5,000 years or so of, of historical periods, which we would call moving down through the Bronze Age, Iron Age, um, Persian period, and so on, as we move into the present. Now, about Sumer, uh, ancient Sumer is in the region of, uh, of Mesopotamia, southern Mesopotamia, that we call uh, Babylonia. Now, it's a bit confusing because the Sumerians actually preceded uh, the Babylonians, and so already we have an anachronism. Uh, but the Sumerians were a group of people that had a very high, very developed culture. We owe much to them. Uh, there's all kinds of famous work that was done early in archaeology's history about uh, discovering these early civilizations. And one of the famous things that was talked about how there is these 50 or 60 firsts that happened at Sumer, including the first real timekeeping uh, understanding. Why is it that when we talk about a minute or an hour, we divide it into 60? Uh, well, you can owe that you can you can point back to the Sumerians are the ones who first devised it. We have, of course, the first uh, flood story, the first creation story. Uh, we have so many of the, uh, you know, the first poetry emerging from from Sumer. And so it's just a, a very important part of this development. And the interesting thing is, is that even the language itself, and Mary can talk about this much more than I can, is not 
related uh, to what we have developing further with uh, as we move into Akkadian and Babylonian and other languages, and yet it was brought in, and many of the, the cultural elements, the religion, the pantheon that was worshipped, these things were continued, and it lasted uh, well into the Hellenistic and even early early Roman period, the, the language of, of, of the Sumerians, long after the Sumerians were gone. And so in some ways, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Latin in the sense that it died out as a, as a spoken language, but you have these people continuing it. So it's a, a very important part of this whole, um, this whole civilization that developed in uh, southern Mesopotamia, which again can be known as Babylonia or Sumer, depending on which period of time you are talking about. No, and that's a, it's a good point. Um, and if we spend a second on Sumerian, um, so Sumerian is a really interesting language. It's, a, it's actually a language isolate. Um, there's a handful of those out there, um, which means there's no other related language, right? So when we think about Latin, right, it's a Romance language. So there's all these other ones, Spanish, Portuguese, French, right? All of these related languages. But for, our, for Sumerian, it is an isolate and it doesn't have any rela- related languages um, in the ancient world. So um, <clears throat> it was spoken sort of from, we don't know when it was spoken from, but we have it beginning to be recorded in 3200 BCE. And it's spoken until sort of the end of that, you know, in, in end of the millennium. So maybe until 2000 um, BCE. And we have, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting writing language because it's not, it's a bit different. Um, I actually, I, I don't know how much I should go into the, into that, but. Um, Feel free. <laughs> I know. I'm like, no, actually, maybe that's too much detail. But the big, the bigger thing about that is um, it really, the language itself and the way it was constructed came out of those early stamped uh, envelopes because something like the word for walk, right? And actually, I, um, yeah, so something like the word for walk, it actually was a foot. And the, the, the sign of a foot stood for the verb to walk, right? So it wasn't a typical syllabic language or an alphabetic language. It was, it was not that way. It was actually uses logograms, which are really like the foot sign means walk. So it ends up being used for sort of literary pieces, um, like the Epic of Gilgamesh and things like that, but it doesn't actually continue on as a spoken language. It's that when it dies out, there's no other language related to it. That makes it a really interesting language. Um, but Sumer isn't the only language that arises in that, in that the you know around the 3200 BCE period. It also starts in Egypt, which is actually quite interesting. So we find in Egypt um, a couple examples. Um, the very first example of potential writing comes from um, a very early use of um, uh, the scorpion symbol for um, what we think is the scorpion king, not to be confused with the rock. Um, but um, <laughs> there was actually a scorpion king. Um, and he actually, there's a symbol on a kind of a, a, a jar from period that shows a scorpion. And, and the question is, is that writing, right? I mean, this is where you get really, it's, it's tricky to know when writing is, you know, has pictures. <laughs> is it art? Right. Is it writing? We're not sure. Um, well, can, can I, can I jump in and ask you a question? No, because I, I think no. I, I really like, I, well, okay, fine. I'll, no, I'll, I'll please, be quiet. Please. Um, so what, what is really interesting about what you pointed out with, um, Sumerian and as you're getting into with Egypt is when we think about the origins of writing, uh, one, kind of connected question is, well, what were they actually writing on? What's the material that they were going to be writing with? And you indicated, you know, this wet clay, because as we'll look ahead to later things where in the biblical period, um, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, they're writing on perishable materials. So parchment and papyrus and so on. And certainly there was a plethora of writings that were besides what we have in the New Testament and Old Testament that are that are gone because they simply um, weren't by the Dead Sea <laughs> and and eroded away because of just natural natural realities. And so what I found really interesting though is when we talk about these tablets, you're saying that the earliest form of Sumerian in terms of its writing can be traced to a material that can be found. In other words, there weren't predecessors that would be on perishable materials such as parchment and papyrus. So it's just this really nice coincidence that the earliest forms of writing we have in in Sumerian, as well as it seems also in Egypt, they're written on evidence um, material 
that will not perish, whether that's clay or that that's rock. And I think that's an important thing for people to, to realize is that there's a real dearth of uh, inscriptions in the place that we want it the most, in the land of Israel or Canaan, depending on when you're talking about it. But it's not necessarily because there's not writing happening there. It's mainly because what they're writing on is a perishable material. So it's really interesting that we have so many wonderful inscriptions from Sumer and Babylon and Egypt and so on. But one of the main reasons why we have these, of course, they're high civilizations and they developed a lot of these writings, but what they actually wrote on is something that will not deteriorate um, unless, of course, someone hits it with a hammer, which often does happen, or it gets exposed to weather and you lose the writing. But once clay is fired, it is uh, it will last forever in whatever form that is. And so that's, that's a very nice thing to see from the beginning stages how they were developing their, their written language. No, and it's a good point. Like, I think maybe if we can just take a second and talk about the different uh, media that, that on which we find writing, um, and we can talk about both perishable and imperishable, and that, and I think that's a, a nice distinction. Um, as mentioned, some of the earliest texts are found on clay that has been fired, and these are typically called tablets, and we find them in usage from about 3000 BC all the way to 400 BC. They are very important in the Assyrian period, etc. Um, the thing about them is they're clunky, right? Like, if you're going to ship a letter to your grandma, you're gonna be like, Hey, here's this giant clay tablet, right? You know, it, it's not fantastic for, um, long distance trade and things like that, right? You want something that's lighter, that's easier that you can roll, right. That you can write longer things on the, the, the other thing about them is they can break, right? So whereas they are imperishable, you'll keep them forever. They can chip off, you can lose sections. And that's a really big problem for philologists or people that work on text because you get, and it's inevitable. You're like reading through a text and write at the juiciest bit that you want to know you have a break and you just got to, oh, okay, I'm not sure. And that you see all the time, you know, if you're looking at text, you'll see little brackets to say, we're filling in because we're not sure what's here because there's a break in the tablet. So, which is kind of a bust. You also have, um, out of Egypt, you have a lot of texts written on stone um, that have been carved into stone. And in fact, you know, going back to kind of origins of writing, the earliest real graffito or sentence that we find comes from 28 BCE in Egypt, and it was carved in stone. And so you actually, that's, it's preserved forever for that reason, right? Um, the the other thing you come at, it comes out of Egypt is more perishable, um, is papyrus. So we hear about that a lot. It comes from the papyrus plant, and it's taken into strips and it's woven together kind of like a basket and then written on it allows for it's, it's really uh, lightweight so it's easy to transport you can get a lot of material on it you can roll it up like a scroll but the problem is it's also um, it, it is very uh, it can de deteriorate very quickly right which is a problem it gets preserved for us because it's in the deserts of Egypt so it gets buried it gets preserved in the hot weather in the sand you know more about preservation of things like that. Um, papyrus is used kind of 2,500 BCE. So from the end of the old kingdom to 600 CE. So it has a really long lifespan at the time that it's been used, was used. Um, and it's used in other places in the ancient, ancient world, but primarily in Egypt. Right. So like just a, just a, a kind of an example of this in the Dead Sea Scroll corpus, most of what's there is on parchment, which would be, which I know you're gonna talk about in a second, is, um, is you know, with, with, we have animal skins that are dried, but there is some that are on papyrus, which is, is indicating that these were available as, um, as a, as a written writing material for, uh, for people really not just in Egypt, but throughout uh, parts of the ancient Near East. Uh, and just as a, um, a, just an observation, you may hear in the name papyrus, the modern word paper, uh, because that is ultimately uh, seems to be where it is derived from, uh, that there's, that it seems to be connected. So it's an interesting, always interesting to see when those, uh, those words uh, continue down to the present day. And if you're interested in a career shift, there's also a career called a paperologist. So um, I, I just thought about moving to that career just because of the title, but you know, it didn't, it didn't, wasn't in the cards for me. Um, but yeah, Chris, you mentioned. Uh, that sounds like something off the office, by the way. <laughs> I've never watched the office. <laughs> but I like that. Um, 
Uh, great. So parchment, let's talk parchment. So um, parchment is literally from tanned animal skins, as you mentioned. So they, you know, skin the poor sheep that were traded back in Sumer. And they, you know, they actually remove the the, the hair or the fur or the, you know, the wool, whatever. Um, and this is, is dried. And parchment is really fantastic because it can be it's preserved pretty well. It's better than papyrus for that reason. Um, and it can be rolled on scrolls. It can be stitched together, right? Papyrus, it's harder to do that. But with, with parchment, you actually can. You can stitch it together just like you would stitch together, you know, skins. Um, and so you can get long, 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 massive scrolls. And so that gets you started. It starts in use about 500 BCE. And then it's really used till today, of course. So in modern Jewish communities and in others, right, you, you see the large Torah scrolls, which are still made on parchment. So, um, which has a kind of a long lifespan. The interesting thing is, you know, sometimes when we think about the ancient world, right, so you have tablets, you've got stone, right? Those kind of things. Um, and then you think about kind of the scrolls of the Hebrew Bible, they would have been truly on scrolls, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And so it's not as simple as like, whoop, let me flip back to the second chapter, right? No, you would have to like manually lift both sides of the scroll, move it back to the second chapter. It would be kind of a hard deal. So you had to, and, and you weren't, you know, so it's not handy for like reading large volumes. And so that was, that led to a really major innovation in, in the world of text, which in 400 CE, so about a thousand years after parchment started to be used, um, they invented the codex and the codex was, is a book, right? So it basically said, Hey, instead of stitching together in a scroll, let's get, stitch them together in a book. And that obviously transformed, um, just the, the world of writing, right? Cause you could right. actually read This is like accordance and logos 1.0. I mean, this is really changing <laughs> the, uh, the biblical software. That's right. This is the first <laughs> biblical software. It's pretty impressive. But um, yeah, so those are kind of the, I, what did, Chris, what did I miss? Are there other major uh, No, writing? one thing, one thing comment that I would say is, um, so just as a, you, you made the comment that parchment is, is really only in use from 500 BC or so. Is that more of a general, a general date? I mean, because I think a, a logical follow-up question would be, okay, if we're talking about the biblical account, would it have been written um, on papyrus? I'm not, I'm not getting into specific things, but let's just assume some of the Bible is written before 500 BC, which I would certainly say uh, is. Uh, um, what would it have been written on? Would it have been written on papyrus or parchment? Uh, or can we, can we know that? No, I think we have no idea. That's a great question. But no, I mean, I think we see evidence of writing before that. It's very possible that it could have been on papyrus. It could have um, been on tablets, right? We have tablets coming out of coming out of Israel and things like the Gezer calendar, right? You know, people are writing early. The Gezer calendar, we'll talk about that later, um, comes about 1000 BCE. So we know that writing is, is there. It could have been, right? It, you know, it could also have been um, transmitted orally, right? Um, there's a massive oral tradition. So we think of even later things like the Iliad and the Odyssey, those would have likely been transmitted orally, right? And so the same is true for the ancient world, right? You actually would have had oral traditions and there would have been people that would have actually been paid or, you know, sustained via the community to, to contain, you know, to keep um, this oral tradition. But if you think about, I mean, I, I'd love to know your thoughts on this, Chris. Obviously we see a royal scribal culture happening in, in the area, you know, in the environs of Jerusalem and in the court and in Samaria as well. And there would have been scribes supported by the, you know, the royal, the royal dynasty. What are they writing on I me? Mean, what's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that they're writing, I, maybe I've only thought of it in terms of they're writing on a scroll and not really thought about if they were using uh, papyrus or parchment. But I, I think that there's a, a great relief that uh, I've always pointed to when I want to illustrate this. It's from Tiglath-Pileser III, who's reigning in, um, you know, the, the late 8th century, you know, from 745 uh, or so to about 727 BC. It's, it's actually 745 to 727. <laughs> I was like, you mean uh, but, exactly? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it exactly is that. Um, but around 730 or so, there's this uh, relief that he has um, that has two of his uh, scribes, and one is writing in cuneiform, Akkadian, and the other has a scroll. Now, of course, on the relief, we can't tell if that's parchment or papyrus, but it's clear he's writing, and we know from other sources that this would have been in Aramaic. Um, and so I, I really have not thought a lot about it, but it could either be parchment or, or papyrus. And I think those options uh, would have been available um, 
at least as you're saying for parchment by 500 BC, but um, it, it's just hard to say because again, a lot of these discoveries, we we really have the Dead Sea Scrolls and not a whole lot of, we have the Wadi Dahlia uh, papyri, uh, which are from the Persian period, so it's papyri. So um, much of, of the actual medium, we're, we're still a bit in the dark on. And of course, there's all these other studies that have, that have happened. It's clear they're writing. I would say that there's that there's archives that exist. We have Boule uh, f- uh, from the 8th century, the 7th century, the 6th century in Jerusalem. We have Boule now existing um, in places like Kirbet Sumeli, uh, where we have uh, Jeff Blakely and uh, and Hardin, who have excavated there, um, these are don't have um, writing on them themselves. But the existence of Boule from the 11th and 10th century BC speaks to the fact that you have writing happening in this area. Uh, but but all we find is the is the seal impression, uh, which would have bound up the scroll what the actual scroll was made or said, uh, we, we don't have anymore. Uh, so we just have literally like the postage stamp uh, that, that's left <laughs> of the entire letter. But that even that, recovering that is a difficult enterprise and it requires, um, it requires a lot of in, in investigation, even involving flotation or wet sieving, sometimes where you actually take all the dirt that you've excavated and to look for these little bitty uh, stamps, uh, hoping that you'll find one, and then it's not just a you know dirt that you've excavated, and then hoping it'll have something that's legible on it. Um, and just to, to illustrate why this is so significant, I mean, this was done in Jerusalem, and in the last decade or so, this has been in Jerusalem um, since the Temple Mount Sifting Project, and we should mention, especially because she unfortunately just passed away, Elat Mazar, um, the discovery of the boule that have the name Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, uh, which of course are two um, late 8th century kings of Judah, um, and then also the possible um, boule of Isaiah. Now, we don't get into you know the the, the, the paleography and the, the differences there, but they were found through uh, this type of, of high level uh, looking for the smallest bits of, of difference in even the dirt itself to just try and find traces of writing. And so when we talk about archaeology, and maybe I can just say a general thing about this, I'll get this question all the time. What's the greatest thing you ever found? Um, and any, any archaeologist worth their salt who gets that question is going to say, a building, <laughs> architecture. We like architecture, and, and I would say that. And by the way, it's a temple from Borna, a late Bronze Age temple. But, the, but all that would be trumped by finding a very nice inscription in a secure context, because that is speaking to us, uh, if we can decipher it, of course, uh, from that distant period that we... Um, and so that's the real treasure of an archaeologist is, is looking for these, these writings, and we're going about them really to extreme measures, uh, knowing that we're not going to find, at least if we're talking about the Iron Age, uh, the parchment or the papyrus that exists, but hoping we'll find the thing that sealed them, which might include a legible name, uh, which we can then compare to this growing corpus of, of names and, um, and different titles and things of that nature. No, I think that's a great, and that's, this is actually a good correlation, like uh, in terms of chrono- chronology and the development of writing, because you mentioned I call them bulai, which maybe I've been pronouncing it incorrectly for B- the entire. Bula is a, a, a singular. Bule is plural. I know, but I pronounce it bulai because it's a e, and that's pronounced i in Latin. <laughs> but I probably don't pronounce it correctly. So you said it, and I was like, wait. Potato, potato, patata. I know uh, you're from yeah, Texas. Yeah. I think it's a Texan. That's no. right, y'all. That's right, y'all. We're we're <laughs> fixing right. to go to the store. Yeah, go ahead. No, um, but I but it's a great correlation because um, that brings up uh, seals, and so we have different seals. We actually have seals coming. Literally, we have so many thousands of seals. It's crazy. So, and what a seal could be different, different ways. You could actually have a stamp steel, see a seal, which you could take a, a piece of clay um, and stamp a, you know, stone stamp into it. And, and just as Chris was mentioning, that pr- creates these bullae, which are found everywhere. Right. And they, and they seal, they can seal doors, right. They can seal storehouses. They can steal, uh, seal jars of food, right. That you say. The Famous jar- one, the uh, Tutankhamun. Um, the opening to his to his grave. I mean, it's or his uh, his his shrine. It has a, a nice bula 
right there on the entrance. Uh, it's pronounced boule. Uh, oh, no, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But no, so you have these stamp seals. You also have, um, and these come all the way from, you know, early, early, early third millennium. So it's, it, these are really early. The other thing we have are cylinder seals. Um, and this would have been a very personal item and it would have been worn both as sort of like your signature as, you know, around your neck. So you would actually have worn your, your cylinder seal. And what it is, is um, it's literally like a bead that has a picture, which has been carved into stone. And then it would have been hollow in the middle. So it could have been worn on a necklace or worn around your wrist, whatever. Um, and we have these in the thousands. So these are quite interesting because it would have been your personal seal. Um, and we have these on, like if you take Garrett, for instance, we actually have the Kings would sign with their cylinder seal. And these are fascinating because they tell us a lot about, you know, not only writing, but also art because they would have been actual art artistic scenes that would have been, you know, uh, carved in miniature in these seals. Um, and these seals would have been, uh, done in very expensive, uh, not expensive, but they would have been well-made. It would have been costly to create them. So we have some from, from the middle bronze age era, era of, of Ugarit and hematite and, and things like that. So it's actually quite beautiful, um, the way they're carved and you would have kept it with you and they came, became kind of an amulet, a personal amulet. Um, that's really interesting. Can I ask you, um, the, the seals, the cylinder seals from Ugarit, are those uh, a local production or as it seems to be the case throughout most of the, the, at least in the late Bronze Age, having that Mitanni glyptic style that we have in Southern Canaan, it, or, or, they, or is it kind of a mix? It's actually a really interesting question. There's, there are several massive volumes written on this and my, my, you know, um, my, my knowledge of this is very specific to Ugarit because what I wanted to see is are the cylinder seals found in the middle bronze age? Are they related? Like, how are they related to the ones that are found in the rest of the ancient world? Right. Are they similar to the ones in the Southern Levant? Are they similar to the ones in Mari and that kind of thing? And where were they produced most importantly? Right. And so we actually see that there were local production uh, shops happening at Ugarit, but also at Aleppo and several other local sites in the Northern Levant. And they were all, they all shared very similar materials like hematite. Um, and they had a, um, of a Mari royal style that was a little bit more bubbly, if that, if I can say that word, right? A little bit rounded. Um, and it's very specific to that time period. So after sort of the end of this time period, they're not using hematite anymore. They're not using this style anymore. They're using different styles. So it, it the styles would go in and out. It's kind of like clothing fashion, right? Like you're like, Oh, what seal do you have? Right. So they're kind of changing the production, but the production would have been local. Absolutely. They would have been getting it from local shops and we have kind of the materials archeologically that show that they're actually producing it. Um, and kind of ha having these seal production shops. Anyway, we've like spent now 10 minutes talking about Boulay and I'm not sure why, but let's continue our march through uh, the world. So now, but a very important because I would have skipped over that. So thank you for bringing that, bringing that to the fore. Um, I thought we could take a little bit of time just talking about the languages. I know we sometimes get kind of confused. You hear about something that, you know, King Tut, and you hear over here, the, you know, this Bula, and then you hear, you hear over here, this Gilgamesh and then Atrahasis and then the Hebrew Bible. And like, what are the languages of the ancient world? How are they related? You know, what, how are they written? And so we can just spend a little bit of time talking through those, but not a lot, just giving a cursory overview. Um, so we talked about Sumerians. So that was the very kind of the earliest language. Um, but in the same region of, of Sumeria, you know, I, maybe I didn't say that Su Sumeria, you know, Sumerian is found in the region of Mesopotamia. So around the Tigris and the Euphrates in modern day Iraq and beyond. Right. Um, and in that same area, we also have the rise of Semitic languages, um, and in particular East Semitic languages. And so we have um, something like the language called Akkadian and we have it already in, um, um, early in the 2000s, um, potentially around the same time that Sumerian is being written. And I actually took an entire class all about old Akkadian. Um, we have full texts uh, from, you know, 2700, 2600. And there, you know, we read texts that were love letters. We read texts that were, um, right. So, and this, uh, this, uh, so Akkadian is written um, syllabically. So just giving it an example of that, if you wanted to make the sign, um, you know, do, you know, you wanted to spell out a word, so you take the word um, water, right? You would say wa-a-tar, right? Um, and that actually comes from Hittite, but don't worry about it, but it's that's syllabically done, right? Wa-a-tar, right? Which is different than W-A-T, right? That would be alphabetic. So um, that's how Akkadian is written. And Akkadian has over 600 signs and each sign can have a, have multiple meanings. So a sign could mean 
ah, do, tar, like it can have all these different signs. And so you have to read it. You have to like know the sign, get it in context. Okay. I think it time period that it was written, that kind of thing. And so, you know, your average Joe <laughs> could not have been a scribe. Like it was, you had to study, you had to go to scribal school. You had to learn this, which meant your average person didn't read, right? They weren't, they weren't literate. And it really made it almost impossible to be literate. Um, there are a couple other you know, Akkadian over time changes and there's Neo-Babylonian and Neo-Assyrian, but from most, you know, or um, Mari Akkadian, all these different versions of Akkadian, but it's, it's still the same language and it's still written with the same set of signs primarily or almost exclusively on clay tablets. So um, anything to add to that, Chris, before I move to the next I, I would just make one uh, correction. I would say that I prefer to call it instead of average Joe, since we're talking about Semitic languages, I prefer average yo. You've you know, because they have before. no <laughs> sound. Um, but, Unless you know, the, it, it's, it, I can only imagine what it would be like to stumble upon an archive of where, what these cuneiform tablets are often found in. You know, just to imagine what it would have been like in the 19th century when they excavated at uh, Kalhu uh, or um, they're excavating at Nineveh and just to find thousands of tablets and just to put them in a basket and bring them back to the British Museum and they still haven't deciphered them all. And then to be able to read, I mean, like, it's just incredible. I mean, it just shows you the, the um, you know, the ability to, or what it means to have all this writing and have it preserved. And, um, but, but I, I just, just to, the main, the main reason why I spoke of is because, you know, it needs to be average yo. So, but keep, keep going. I was actually going to say that because you made that joke the last time we did an oh, interview. Did I? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I was like, like, oh, I yeah. need to bring it back. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, the one thing I was going to add to that is there's been other, that's a good, you know, if you could share more on context, I think that'd be good. Cause I was thinking about Eblite, right? Um, so Eblite is a form of e-Semitic and they actually found um, the storehouse where they kept thousands of tablets and it had collapsed over time, right? But they excavated it and they just found this room of just tablet upon tablet upon tablet, upon tablet upon thousands of tablets in broken states. Um, and immediately there was an entire window into a civilization. We didn't know hardly anything about Ebla. And then all of a sudden, well, Eblite's almost impossible to read. So after taking Eblite, I, at the end of the class, I think I knew less Eblite than I did at the beginning, but still like the fact that you have all of a sudden this window into an entire civilization, because you find these storehouses where the clay tablets and been preserved and there's i'm sure there's thousands more of these out there we just haven't found yeah them, so. i mean that's what's crazy i mean especially in syria and you know the the northern levant i mean depending on when you would find an archive you could essentially if you hit an archive create a new discipline because a window whether we're talking about ugarit ebla mari all these are niche things but they have big picture implications for biblical studies semitic studies in general but they're also going to have to develop their own um, academic discipline related to that particular site, the development of that particular language and how it all fits. And so that's what's actually, I think, the most exciting thing about waiting for some of these texts to eventually be uncovered. And undoubtedly, there are those still waiting to be discovered, um, perhaps in places where we would want them to be the most, which is why Hatzor is always the one that's thrown out as a real possibility and we're still waiting. Uh, but there's, as is often the case, they end up in places you never would expect. Uh, so hopefully, you know, as, in, particularly in Syria, as things begin to hopefully cool down, eventually uh, further discoveries such as these can be made. And just to show how big these discoveries are, I mean, we talked about Ugarit in, in a previous episode, that was found over almost 100 years ago, and we're still talking about the implications of what these mean to, um, to, to not only Ugaritic studies, biblical studies, language studies on the whole. And so, uh, again, highlighting the significance of these massive archives that are found. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, moving on, one of the another early language group is Egyptian, um, which is a form of, if you want to call it hemito-Semitic. So it actually has Semitic form, form, you know, very similar. Um, like its personal pronouns are similar, but it's it's a little bit different. So it mixes um, a, several things. It mixes logograms, like we found in you know Sumerian. Um, it mixes syllabic writing, like our Wa'atar example, and then it also has alphabetics. So you can, you know, if you, you know, uh, my nieces took a class on it. 
Egyptian and they wrote their names in Egyptian, right? Because it's got alphabet. But it actually, again, has over a thousand signs. So it's actually really complicated. So you, when you are reading text, you have to be aware of kind of the alphabet, but then also signs that multiple meanings. You've got little things that tell you something about what the word is, right? Is it a gentilic form or whatever, right? So it gets a little, uh, a little Big tough. keyboard. Yeah, you big keyboard, which again, you need scribes. This is the real problem, yep. right? You need scribes who can do this and who are chiseling them into the walls, right? Um, but Egyptian in some form gets used for a long time. So it's, it's, it changes into hieratic and demotic, which are kind of like just cursive forms of this, which are on the Rosetta Stone, which come all the way from, you know, the, the Ptolemaic period and the Hellenistic time period. So it go, keeps going uh, for quite a long time. Um, um, and again, that's really concentrated in the land of Egypt. So you've got. I have I have one comment and two questions. One co the comment is that it's really interesting you make the point about scribes and scribal practices. And my main connection for, for Egyptian writing has has been the city lists of Tutmos and Shishak and, and there's others. And oftentimes it seems because these 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 big city lists that existed on places like Karnak they existed for later scribes to go and check their work on. So they could go back to Tutmos III's list and they could say, well, this is what Tutmos said. Shishak, uh, we, we were four, you know, four or 500 years later, he's going to these same places. Let me check my spelling with, uh, for, for Megiddo. And, and, and that existed to them because it was all actually part of the same building at Karnak. And so they're chiseling in stone, particularly on this monumental architecture, things that are going to continue to exist. But it, what ends up happening is if you have a, a, a mistake in the early one, the mistake will be repeated. Uh, and the Which way, is so cool. The way, you can just it's imagine. So cool. You're like, yeah. the teacher messed up. It's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, I, totally. And the other thing I was going to ask you is, uh, you mentioned Semitic, Hamitic. Mm -hmm. Do these have any relation to uh, terminology that might come from the Bible? Not at all. <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah. So with, when, so, and we won't go talk a lot, a lot about language families, although it's one, like one of the most fascinating things, but yeah, there are different language families. One of them is the Semitic language family that obviously comes from the name Shem, right? Uh, so we think of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so you have Shem and that brand, you know, come from that term, um, comes the Semitic language family. And of course that's a modern, you know, uh, a modern ascription to this language family, but it's called that. And then when you get into Egypt, you get Hamido-Semitic, which isn't, you know, uh, so in vogue anymore, but uh, that comes obviously from Ham and what, you know, the people group that would have settled in Egypt. So that, that come, that's kind of the origins of those terms. Um, yes. You had a second question? That was, that was the question. So I would just say that Two if, you, if you're wondering one. about those, uh, yeah, maybe I did, I forgot it. But so if you want to know where those terms come from, you can look at Genesis 9 and especially Genesis 10, which lists all those countries. But that is where we have the intersection really between biblical archaeology and the study of these regions, because the people that were studying um, Egypt and Sumer and all these places, many of them were coming from Christian environments, whether we're talking about France or Britain or Germany. And so they're bringing with them the uh, the ideas of, you know, this is going to reflect the Bible. And they even classified it according to those terms that continue to be used until today, where we don't even really think about it when we say Semitic language, but it's directly connected with an early choice to call these things according to a biblical uh, description. No, thank you for that. I think that's, it's always interesting to connect sort of the ancient with the modern and the way that modern you know, scholars have, have taken, taken this on. So, uh, I think it's, you know, worth mentioning that the line between writing and art in Egyptian is, is a very thin one, right? So when you think about, you know, the walls of, of King Tut's, um, tomb, and if you ever have a chance to go down to the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, it's fascinating and you can get a sense of, wow, it's really hard to tell, okay, what of this is art and what of this is writing? Because, you know, people and monkeys and all of those things are actually signs, right? Out of their thousand signs. And so it is a whole decipherment process uh, to kind of understand where writing starts and where, where uh, art ends. 
So um, another interesting language group, like if we make our way around the ancient world, is um, what comes out of uh, Asia Minor or modern day Turkey is a language group called Hittite or Luwian, uh, Hittite and Luwian. Um, and it's really an Indo-European language. So it's not a Semitic language. It's not related to, you know, Semitic at all. And uh, Hittite is actually, uh, so it's related to modern day kind of English, right? <laughs> it's Indo-European. Um, and it comes from about 1800 BCE is when it starts. And it's the earliest Indo-European language and the way that they um, deciphered it, and this was why it was in my head, is they actually did it through the word water. So they got this text and they saw wa-a-tar and they were like, oh, wait, water, this is great. And that's actually how they ended up uh, deciphering Hittite. Um, and it uses the cuneiform script that is borrowed from Akkadian. And when I say cuneiform, right, I should have said this, they actually used a stylus or a reed um, and they would have pressed it into the clay to make shape right? Um, and so they use the script out of Akkadian, but they adapt it. Uh, so it's still syllabic and they have about, it's much simpler. It has about a hundred signs, but still again, it was heavy scribal culture. That's what was required. So that's Hittite and would have been spoken by the Hittites all through the Bronze Age and beyond. Um, the other language is Luwian, which is related to Hittite. Um, and we see it as actually really important kind of in the Iron Age. We get some really important Luwian texts to help us understand the biblical history. Uh, and Luwian is very different. It's pictographic and it's quite under, hard to understand. And so Luwian scholars uh, are, you know, I, I've never studied Luwian myself, so I, I can't, I can't speak to it heavily. Um, but we see a lot of, uh, we actually see uh, bilingual Phoenician and Luwian inscriptions from the Iron Age that tell us a ton about so the Phoenician Empire and what was happening in the Iron Age and that kind of thing. So it is quite significant for biblical history. Yeah, I would, I would just add a couple comments just. For one, I, I think that the discovery of Hattusha, you know, the, the ancient capital of, of, of the Hittites, is in some ways, and I don't mean to diminish Ugarit, um, because you I know that's your, that's, because, that's wow. your, that's your I, I, I love it as well, <laughs> uh, but it's at least on par with that type of discovery because of the number of tablets that were found there, and really the discovery of a, of a, of a not just a completely new civilization, but a massive civilization that was, it would be like not knowing that in the 20th century, if we, if we fast forward a thousand years, that all, all we knew was of the U.S. and not the USSR. Because um, <laughs> that's really what it was like in the, in the early Bronze Age, is you had Egypt and you had these other major nations, major empires, and one of those were the Hittites. And to find their homeland, uh, to find a group of, uh, of, of tablets um, that tell so much about the uh, comings and goings, the the politics, the marriage, the the religion of the Hittites is is so significant. Now, I do want to just make a couple of comments about classifications. The Bible, of course, also makes references to the Hittites a lot. Uh, we have the Hittites again; they're one of the the, the seven peoples of the of the land. Uh, we have the Hittites appearing um, in, in a few other contexts. In my opinion, and I think a number of of scholars would agree with me is that those Hittites don't have really anything to do with the Hittites of the late Bronze Age, uh, except for a couple of exceptions. One exception would be in the book of Judges, the beginning, I think it's in chapter two, uh, where we have um, Bethel attacked, maybe it's in chapter one, uh, Bethel attacked and destroyed, um, and then the guy who let them in through a postern gate, uh, he goes off to the land of the Hittites and names his city Luz. We also have some references in Joshua that might be references in, 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 a, in a description of the northern end of the country of the, of the land of the Hittites. And then some more secure ones in the book of Kings, where we have references to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Arameans. But actually, these references to the Hittites are not references to the late Bronze Age empire of the Hittites, but the Neo-Hittite or Lovwian or Luwian uh, city-state kingdoms that developed uh, in the collapse of the, uh, of the Hittite empire. Um, so the Hittites of the Bible, at least in my opinion, should be connected with Hebron and the region of Hebron, which we can read about in Genesis, which has a lot of implications for how you read those texts. But nevertheless, that doesn't diminish how significant the discovery of these uh, of this entire civilization was for for the history of this period and even connections with the Bible. There are so many amazing 
amazing uh, stories and narratives, um, treaties that we have from Hattusha that bear direct relationship upon how we read things like the book of Deuteronomy, blessings and cursings, how we read even uh, the book of Samuel, uh, which what's called the Apology of David. There's a, a famous um, parallel called the Apology of Hattusuli, uh, where he's uh, essentially uh, the whole time being uh, marked by his um, his how Ishtar Ishtar always has his eye her her eye on him that she's going to protect him all the way. And scholars have said this is, bears a lot of resemblance to what we see in uh, parts of the books of First and Second Samuel with David's rise. And so even on the genre level. Uh, just some fascinating connections between what we have in Hittite literature, uh, whether we're talking about the Empire, which would be in the Middle Bronze and Late Bronze, or the Iron Age, when we're talking about the Neo-Hittite states, which would emerge in this kind of dark period of where we don't have a, as much information in the beginning of the Iron Age. No, and that's great. And to tip our hand a little bit, one of the texts I think we're going to talk about is there's a treaty that comes at the Battle of Kadesh in the late Bronze Age. It's one of the most significant texts on the ancient world. It's We find it both in Hittite and in Egyptian, which is so cool. And it hangs on the wall today in the UN um, as the first peace treaty. So we're going to be talking about that on a later episode in four years from now. Um, <laughs> no, so, um, no kidding. Um, really fast, we'll blitz through Ugarit. There was another podcast on that, but Ugarit... The only big thing here is it's still cuneiform, meaning it's on um, clay, but then it, it's actually alphabetic. So it's so much easier to read. It only has like in the region of 30 signs and uh, so much easier to read, right? And, you know, and anybody can kind of pick these things up um, and read them. So um, that's, and that comes from the late Bronze Age. Uh, and so and that would be, that would be parallel with the end of the Hittite kingdom. Right. So exactly. The, they so both about end about 1185 BCE with the rise of the Sea Peoples. So, um, and then you know, as you said, the Hittites kind of fan out, and they really merge with some of the Aramean city-states, which we're going to talk about Aramaic in a second. So, um, this brings us to the, late, to the Iron Age, which really is where we care a lot about, for, you know, in terms of the biblical world. We think about what's going on in the Iron Age in the region of the Kings. So, we have a couple languages that are important here. So, um, the first one is Phoenician. Um, so, Phoenician would have been spoken. Um, um, in uh, the Phoenician city-states, kind of modern-day Lebanon, and they spread out all the way into the Mediterranean. So they had, they were in Marseille, and they were in Carthage, and they were in all these other places. Um, and so Phoenician, and then the following language, Punic, are are part of this. Um, they are a, a Northwest Semitic language, so they're Semitic, um, and uh, again, it's alphabetic. And the coolest thing about Phoenician is that this is where we get our um, alphabet today. So um, Phoenician starts in kind of the beginning of the Iron Age, maybe a thousand BCE. And then the the uh, alphabet gets taken in two directions. It gets borrowed by the Greeks and the, into Latin, and then it comes into English. And this is where we actually get our ABC. And so you can actually look up charts of how the alphabet kind of was carried over. It also went east. And so it was picked up by Aramaic. We get it in um, Hebrew. And then it also gets picked up by the Nabataeans, which we'll talk about them later. They were around 100 CE, 100, well, 300 BCE to 100 CE. And then it, the Nabataeans actually, uh, it's borrowed from them by uh, the sort of uh, Arab um, tribal groups and, and it comes into Arabic. And so today, Arabic and English both get their alphabet from Phoenician, which is so cool. So um, do you have anything to add to that? No. Nope. Phoenician. Great. So great. Love it. Okay. Aramaic. We're blitzing. We're blitzing now because now we've gone too far and I'm talking too much about languages. So now we have, um, but honestly, language is so cool. I mean, it's just how we express yeah, ourselves I mean, as humans. I mean, come on. So I'm just, but I'll blitz. I'll blitz. Take now. your so, time. Take your time. Aramaic. Let's just jump there. So Aramaic is, um, uh, it basically is the sort of like English is today. It becomes the lingua franca of the ancient world. So it starts not, we're not exactly sure when it starts, but it really probably starts about 1000 BCE and really from 700 to 200, 700 BCE to 200 CE, it's, it's like the lingua franca and everybody's speaking it, right? So Jesus would have likely spoken Aramaic, uh, you know, the, his fam famous words on the cross were in Aramaic, Aramaic, lama lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic, right? So, um, and Aramaic is spoken today, to, to, until today by Assyrian communities. It's actually been spoken. So we have a number of texts in Aramaic from, from the period that give us historical understanding 
understanding of what's going on in the Iron Age and the Aramean city-states. And we think about kind of the kings of Israel interacting with greater Aram, the Arameans were speaking Aramaic, right? So, Yeah, I think I, think I would just make one comment about uh, classification or really just some terms. Aramaic is the language. Aramean is, in general, the peoples that we connect with places like Damascus, Aleppo, and so on. Uh, I know there's some d- debate about Neo-Hittite and, and, and Aramean there, but it's, that's a political term. Um, and if we think about the Bible, oftentimes in English translations, we have the word Syria, which gets translated there. I don't really like that translation, not because I have anything against Syria, although you know we won't go, we won't go there, uh, but Syria itself is a name that really derives from Assyria. Uh, Assyria by, by the Greeks, we have that name coming over, and perhaps because actually the last capital of the Assyrian Empire was at Haran in its, in its final death throes, and so the name actually gets taken over from Assyria to Syria, and that lives on in, in Greek. But in terms of biblical terminology, anytime we have a, a reference in, in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible to, in English, translation, Syria, it's Aram. And that name is connected with the language of Aramaic, of course, and these Aramean states that would have existed in the early Iron Age until their final destruction, mostly at the, in, in, in terms of the late 8th century. So just a, an important distinction uh, to make because it's often missed when you're reading through uh, books like Samuel and Kings, and you read about all these Syrians, and you wonder what's their relationship to the Assyrians. Uh, there isn't a relationship other than a, than a kind of uh, misconstruence on the part of of, of the Greeks, uh, which get th- which then gets added on to the language. So Aramaic language, Aramean as a political group, and not like Israel or Judah, where you have a, a particular nation state under this collective group. But with the Arameans, we have kingdoms that were mostly based upon a city. And so if we talk about the most famous one, that would be Aram Damascus. But you have other Aramean states uh, in particularly the northern Levant um, that are interspersed with these Neo-Hittite states in the early part of the Iron Age. No, th- thank you for that. That and and maybe we can just quickly say right we we talk about the Hebrew Bible but technically it's the Hebrew Aramaic Bible because we have Aramaic in in a few key spots so Laban he probably spoke Aramaic or you know at least the biblical writers indicate that so when Jacob goes up with Laban and then he flees with his two wives or seven wives, however, however many wives he had, right? Um, they say, we're going to set up this stone of witness, and Laban calls it an Aramaic uh, Aramaic phrase. And we also have Aramaic in a, in a passage in uh, Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah 10. And we also, and then, of course, have large swaths of Aramaic in, in um, Daniel and Ezra. And so Aramaic is, is interspersed in various points in the Bible. And so it's a really important uh, to know that. And even one of the people the peoples that we could connect a small state, the Geshurites, that spelling is in Hebrew, but we actually have in uh, the Table of Nations, we have the name Geter, uh, which is the Aramaic spelling of, of the name, showing the connections between the two languages, that they're the same people, the same group, but that the language itself uh, shows that shift between uh, Shin and Tav, or Tau, if you like, um, between Aramaic and Hebrew. Oh, and that's there's so many different changes and and consonantal right. changes and vowel changes and all of that we won't um, that'll be for the next podcast which everyone <laughs> will t- turn into tune into. Um, the last language I'm going to cover as quickly is Hebrew. Everybody pretty much knows it, but Hebrew is in the line of Northwest Semitic, so it's related to things like Aramaic and Ugaritic, and importantly, it's related to um, it's technically a Canaanite language. So when we think about the Amarna letters, which is another group of texts that we'll be talking about in a few weeks. These are written in Canaanite. So we we see languages coming out of the land of Canaan, and one of those is Hebrew. Um, And so it's probably spoken and written all the way from 1500 BCE, so all all the way to kind of the end of the Late Bronze Age. And um, it's beginning of the Late Bronze Age. uh, What did I say? You said end of the Late Bronze Age. 
Oh, I think you meant to say end, end of the, of middle, the middle Bronze, bronze Age. age yeah. Beginning yeah. of Late Bronze Age. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's bespoken probably until 200 CE when we get the Bar Kokhba revolts because we actually have a letter written in Hebrew. And then it kind of dies out as a living language. And then, of course, is reinvigorated by, um, like, well, I won't even go into the modern, the modern Hebrew thing, but it like, it gets reinvigorated, which is incredible, like a totally impre impressive feat and is now of course spoken. So, um, but it's not quite the same. Um, did I miss any significant languages that we should cover or any other textual things that are useful as we think about, uh, text? I would, I would just say, um, and I know we're not talking about necessary families of languages, but as we think about other languages that it would have existed in dialects, in Hebrew, we have now, because there's there's a corpus of text that exists besides what we have in the Bible, but we have the Samaria Ostraca and the Arad Ostraca, the Lachish letters. There's even the ability to be able to not only show the big development of how the language um, changes over time, how the writing changes, in terms of paleography, orthography, and things of that nature, but even different dialects. Um, there's the idea now that in the Northern Kingdom, there was what's called an Israelian dialect of Hebrew, um, which we don't have as much information on because of course the Hebrew Bible is written from Judah and Jerusalem's perspective, but there are stories, there are accounts that uh, this seems to come over. Uh, and, and some of these are at the most fundamental level uh, such as the the name um, of 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 a deity in this case Yahweh in the people's names how they're even spelled different uh, versus like if you were if your name was Elijah and you lived in the Northern Kingdom which of course that's where Elijah mostly lived you would be more likely to be called Eliyahu but if you lived uh, in Judah you would be called Eliyahu uh, because the the way that they added the name the the theorific name to the the personal name. Uh, was was a slightly different uh, a slightly different spelling. We see this with other names like Jeremiah and so on. Uh, and so those types of things, there are there are dialect, di dialectic differences um, on the part of Israel and Judah. But we also see it in things like the Meshastili, um, where we have the language of Moabite, but it's more or less the same as Hebrew. But there are some uh, some dialect differences. Uh, they could have communicated with one another. Um, undoubtedly, but there are differences in the languages. And even, and what's so fascinating about that is, even in the very small corpus of text that we have that essentially can fill a, a book from the Iron Age in terms of Iron Age inscriptions, you can notice a lot of these differences that have, would have existed uh, chronologically, but also regionally between um, you know, larger Canaanite languages, if you want to classify it that way. One addition to this is, which I didn't talk about, but is useful because you bring up Moabite. So there are a series of other dialects that are going on, right? So Moabite is one of them, but we also have Ammonite, we have um, things coming out of the coastal region, et cetera, right? So we have a number of these other pieces, um, a number of other dialects that come up. My own work and, and half of my book is filled with this is thinking, is looking at Amorite, um, which is a language I didn't talk about, but it's a language of the Middle Bronze Age. And trying to say through these like really fine sound changes, is it a different language? Is it a different dialect, right? Um, how can we trace this? And we're often doing this from very limited information, right? So we don't necessarily have massive texts from, from especially for Northwest Semitic. So when we think about Hebrew or Amorite or Canaanite, right, we're really limited and actually like, the information we have. And so we'll talk about that when we, when we get into specific texts, but how do we actually say, um, you know, Moabite, for instance, we really only know from two texts. And so we have to construct what the language would have looked like, sounded like, et cetera. And most of the texts don't have vowels, right? So Amorite does, but something like Moabite, we don't know the vowels. So we're doing it just from consonants and trying to reconstruct what the language would have sounded like, what it would have, um, the different types of morphemes and all of that. We're kind of piecing it together. So it really is sort of like a puzzle. It's pretty fun, actually. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I prefer pottery. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it, but nevertheless, it's, it is a lot Baffling of fun. And me. I, I prefer, me. well, here, put it this way. I prefer, I, I, you know, we all have our different niches and skills. I prefer to let everybody else do the hard work and then just try to make connections <laughs> with the, with the, with the narrative and vaguely understand, vaguely understand how it works. Um, speaking of an example, uh, Judges chapter 10, uh, excuse me, Judges chapter, Judges chapter 12, 
Um, to illustrate this example, the really uh, rascal character of Jephthah, um, when he interacts with the um, not so nice guys themselves, Ephraimites, uh, when they're called to battle and he traps them on one on the Transjordan side, uh, he tells them, if you're going to come back over, you have to be able to pronounce the password correct, correctly. And this actually, this word has come down to us as a kind of passcode. And it's either you pronounce it shibboleth or sibboleth. Uh, and that just shows you these dialectic differences um, that existed even in a small area across across uh, across a river. Um, another thing about that general time frame of the book of Judges um, that I am always struck by is uh, a few chapters before that with uh, with Gideon, he encounters someone just randomly and says, write this information down as he's passing through, which seems to indicate, you know, that literacy is, um, and that's a whole other question of, you know, the alphabet, right? Yeah, they they have the alphabet. (laughs) They couldn't have done it with Akkadian, but but it does, it does seem to indicate that literacy is fairly widespread, that he could just be wandering through uh, Sukkot and Penuel and see this guy and say, write this information down. Um, so th- these, these things come up in the way we understand the Bible and the way we understand these stories. Writing is um, an assumption when we read the text because we're reading a text, but what they, what people actually knew, uh, how many people actually under understood how to write and read, all of these things are, are questions that have puzzled scholars, and you have a whole scale discussions going on every year at academic conferences, volumes and volumes and volumes being written on this. And so we've hope we've done um, here is to, is to give you a brief overview of the types of languages that exist. And of course, there are others that we could have pointed to, uh, some of the questions involved, how they would have written them, uh, and as well as how those relate to particular particular um, histories and particular civilizations. As we move on into this series, we will um, bear down a bit on particular texts, uh, such as the Meshastili, which we hope to cover next time, but others as we, as we move forward and talk about some of these difficulties in, in, in how we understand the text, as well as just the historical background and how that relates to how we understand particular aspects of the, of, of the biblical account. Uh, so that's the trajectory of this uh, of this series. We don't have a, a a fancy name for it yet, do we, Mary? So we'll have to come the up with some fancy of the name. Ancient Near East. I think Ooh, that is about. really snazzy. Um, <laughs> some of the texts so, we're going to talk about, though, like if we can kind of tease it a bit. Yeah, go ahead. Um, we're talking about the Moabite Zone, the Mesha inscription, as we talked about. We're going to look at the Baal cycle, the Gezer calendar, the Siloam tunnel inscription, Gilgamesh, Atrahasis, the Sennacherib prism, the Black Obelisk, Dear Allah, the Amarna letters, and I can go on. We want to talk about these because you you read about them and hear about them, but like, what really are there? How, where were they found? Who wrote them? What were they written? And what do we learn about them? Right. So we're actually going to dig into the details of some of these important texts. Yeah, I, I'm excited. I mean, it's always fun, as I've said, to let other people do the hard work of <laughs> translating. And then we get to reap you the benefits of them, though, so making historical so connections. Them, so yeah. yeah. So we hope you will tune in uh, as we continue this. What, what, what will prove to be, I think, a fun series uh, in uh, texts of, of the Hebrew texts related to the Hebrew Bible. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>